Well, hey, as you make your way back to your seat, if you would, grab your Bible. If you're just visiting here, our tradition is to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you're able, if you would, make your way back to your seat, grab a Bible, and let's stand up. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. If you're uh, just visiting us and you're new, hey, grab one of these blue hardback Bibles. Turn to page 982. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word out of respect. And uh, if you're able, let's stand. It's page 982. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them. If you don't have a Bible, uh, grab one of those blue hardback Bibles and consider it a gift from us to you. We would love for everybody to have God's Word uh, in their home and, more importantly, in their hearts and in their minds. If you're just joining us, we are in a summer series right now that finishes next week. Our summer series has been on the parables of Jesus, and we are into the parable of the two sons, an oft-neglected parable that I absolutely love. Uh, We are in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. With that in mind, friend, hear the word of the Lord to us. Hear the words of Jesus. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but didn't go. Now, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you be seated and let's pray together as we open up God's holy word. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are present even now where two and more are gathered in your name. And Holy Spirit, we also ask that you would give us insight and understanding. As we study the parables of our Savior Jesus, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be knocking on the back door of our hearts. And Lord, that we would receive the implanted word. And Lord, that it would grow into new life in our hearts. Would we have everything that you have in mind? Lord, would we receive everything that you would give us? and we would believe everything that you say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever had to tell somebody something really difficult? Have you ever had to tell somebody something they don't want to hear? Have you ever had to, you know, tell somebody something really, really hard? I feel like half of my life is telling people things that they don't actually want to hear me say. Uh, But, you know, the, the beautiful thing that you've got to hold on to life, right? The beautiful thing about a friend, a real friend, Uh, Whether you are 16 or 96, a real friend will do what? A real friend will tell you what you need to hear, whether or not you want to hear it at that moment. But if they're your friend, even in a hard moment, you can receive it. Uh, Proverbs 27.9, one of my favorite Proverbs says this, the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Did you catch that? What makes your friends so meaningful is not just that you have fun times watching ball games with them, it's that they can give you earnest counsel. They can correct you when needed. And friends, actually, if it comes from a friend, all of a sudden, you don't put the gate up. Actually, your friends, they all knock on the back door and they can come through the gate, right? They can tell us what we need to hear. 
You know, when you and I study the parables, I've suggested weeks ago that the parables are really Jesus' way at getting to our hearts, but he doesn't burst the door down. He knocks gently on the side door like a friend, and then he gives us earnest counsel. And it may be counsel that we don't want to hear. But really, parables, I mean, if you were to study the Bible, parables are not something that Jesus just invents as a way of communicating. A parable, if you don't know, it's just he just makes up a real-life story that has a meaning to it. It's kind of like an Aesop's fable, except there's no talking animals, okay? Uh, that's other, you know, types of stories. Those are fables. Parables are real-life stories that don't actually happen, but they're taken from day-to-day life. But Jesus doesn't invent parables. In fact, you know, one of the earliest parables in the Bible is actually told by a woman. Does anybody know this story? Uh, There's a guy named David. You may have heard of him, right? The King David. And David had two sons. Uh, He had more than that, but two important sons, if you will. One was Amnon, and the other one was a guy named Absalom. You don't need to know their story necessarily, but you may need to know that something awful happened. Amnon did something wretched, and so his brother Absalom killed him. And so you know what King David did? King David banished Absalom from the kingdom. Now, this was very alarming, right? Because who was going to succeed David? Well, Absalom was taller and more handsome and had better hair than anybody else in Israel. That's not me saying that. It's literally what the Bible says about Absalom. Wait till you hear about his hair, you guys. That's kind of how the Bible talks, okay? So Absalom is banished, and the commander of the army, David's right-hand man, we might call him today the secretary of state, Joab goes to King David And he says, I don't know about this. But David doesn't want to hear it. The front door's locked. David does not want to talk about this. So you know what Joab does? In 2 Samuel 14, kind of an obscure passage, right? Joab goes to a, what the Bible will call a wise woman. Some kind of, uh, you know, lady who had exceeding wisdom. Uh, She's not a prophetess. There are prophets that are women in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but this is a wise woman. And he goes to this wise woman in a town called Tekoa, and he says, can you go tell King David a parable for me? And she does. And she tells him a parable about, guess what? Two sons. And one son murders the other son. And now the townspeople want to kill this son too. And she says, what is this mom going to do? Have two dead sons? And David says, no way. And then the lady says what? King David, the parable is about you. And David goes, oh, I get it now. Does that remind you at all about how the prophet Nathan came to David and said, I'm going to tell you a parable about a guy with a little lamb. And then somebody kills the lamb. And David says what? That man should die. And then, of course, Nathan says what? You're the man. The parable is about you. (laughs) You see, parables enter through the back door. And this wise woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14, which, now, I want to give you credit. I know you just did your devotional this morning on 2 Samuel 14, so I'm telling you something you already know. (laughs) That's a pastor joke, sorry. (laughs) But Jesus now tells a parable about two sons. And he's trying to tell people something hard that they don't want to hear. Just like that wise woman was trying to tell David something he didn't want to hear. And just like the wise woman's parable was actually ultimately pointing the finger at King David, friends, the parable of the two sons is Jesus actually saying something really difficult. And at the end of it, we realize, wait a second. Wait, the parable's about me? (laughs) I thought it was about the bad people. Wait, it's about me? So what is Jesus' 
parable of the two sons. We'll look down at Matthew 21. Uh, Matthew's the only gospel writer that tells us this story. Mark 11 uh, tells us something very similar, but uh, only Matthew tells us this parable, the parable of the two sons. That may be why many people ignore it. Uh, And some people think when they hear the parable of the two sons, they may think of another parable about two sons. What other parable might people be thinking about? Anybody know? Uh, Nathan, not the prophet Nathan, the youth director Nathan preached on this one. The parable of the prodigal son, right? which is about a brother and his younger brother, right? Well, that's not this parable. Jesus has his own parable of two sons. So what is this parable of two sons about? Well, let me just summarize it. If you write notes in your Bible, which I would encourage everybody to do, what I tell you to do is just write the word repentance around this passage because that's really what this passage is all about. And, uh, you know, when, I, when you hear repentance, it's, an important, it's one of those Bible words, but it's an important Bible word to understand. And what repentance literally means in the Greek, in the original language, what repentance means is you change direction, right? You are going down the path one way, and when you repent, you literally turn and you do something else, right? Have you ever been on the highway? Have you ever been on the interstate? And you've seen one side of the interstate all blocked up? And then, you know what I'm talking about? It's going the other direction, and there's a whole line of like 18-wheelers going that way. You know what I'm talking about? No, no one's ever seen this? Is this only? Yeah, okay, you've seen it. Okay, great. Well, you know, when you're going this direction, what do you think? You think, praise God, I'm going in the right direction, <laughs> right? Repentance is when you leave the line of traffic and you go the other direction, right? Repentance is leaving a life that is futile, that is living for this world, and you go on the highway, the right road with God. Repentance is not just something that you do once, right? Uh, this, is, this is really key. This is one of those fundamental things that I hope is seared into your mind after I am long gone from your lives one day. You know, everyone heard the saying, you know, the good, the good goal of a pastor is to preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. That's my life goal. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. This is one of the things that I want you to remember, and this is it. Your life, the Christian life, is one of repentance and grace. Those are the two shoes that you wear. When you follow Jesus, those are the sneakers that you put on. You put on repentance and you put on grace. And you take step after step and you go back and forth from repenting of sin, but also trusting in God's goodness for you. It's not all repentance, nor is it all grace. It is both of those things. They counterbalance each other. You know, this is the great heartbeat of the gospel. Uh, 500 years ago, there was this German guy named Martin Luther. You've heard me talk about him before. He is most famous for what? Anybody, what's the most famous thing Martin Luther ever did? Supposedly. He nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, right? Every Harvest Carnival, I like to recreate this where we nail 95 Reeses to the church door. Has he ever played that game? Or gone bobbing for a diet of worms? It's great. It's an awesome Harvest Carnival type thing. You'll learn about it in like two months, don't worry. Martin Luther famously puts out these theses, these ideas, and, you know, he was a scholar, so he's putting out a scholarly argument. It's supposed to incite conversation. So what he's doing is he's writing to other people and he's saying, let me say some provocative things and let's get the ball rolling and let's talk about it. And you know what number one on the 95 theses was? Number one, what's the first thing Luther wanted to put out there for the church to consider? Number one of the 95 theses. I won't read all 95, I'll read one. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Friends, this parable 
is about repentance, and it's not just something you do once. It is a lifestyle. It is a rhythm of life. Uh, you know, when people, um, you know, go to their doctors. Have you ever been to the doctor, and you've ever had something wrong with your health, and you go to the doctor, and he says, well, I'm sorry, you have high blood pressure, and your cholesterol's out of control. And what is the two things the doctor's going to recommend? He's probably going to recommend, among other things, two very simple ideas, diet and exercise. Now, if you said, well, when I was six years old, I went to vacation Bible school, and I ate a diet of animal crackers, and I exercised like every day. Is that going to pass muster? Or think about it this way. When, we, when a doctor says to you, diet and exercise, is he talking about a once-in-a-lifetime event or a way of life? It is a way of life, right? Repenting of sin, being renewed by God's grace, going back to the gospel is not something you just do once. It is a way of life. It is a path with Jesus. You know, I love the way Tim Keller says it. The gospel is not simply the A, B, and C's of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z. It's all of it. This is the Christian life. And repentance is what this parable is about. So look at verse 28. What is Jesus getting? He says, what do you think? Uh, if you write in your Bible, I'd encourage you to write a question mark every time Jesus asks a question because Jesus is always asking questions. He wants you to use your brain, not just be emotionally affected. And what does he say in verse 28? What do you think? Use your brain, right? What do you think? Let's have a fun thought experiment. Let's do a parable. He says, there's a guy. He owns a vineyard. He's got two sons. He says, son A, go and work the field. And what does this son say? No. And then what does he end up doing? I guess I'll go. The other son, we'll call him son B. Son B does what? He says, yes, father, I go. I have to imagine that's the oldest sibling. Don't you? Isn't that just like an older sibling? But yes, father, I will do it. I go, sir. Sorry, I'm talking to a room full of firstborns, I guess. Also, I'm the secondborn, as you can tell, so... Interestingly, Jesus does not tell us which one is which. When it says first and other, it doesn't, that's not referring to older or younger. It could be either one. That's not the point. But the, the second son, he says, I will dutifully obey everything that you've said. But then actually when it comes time to you know, pick up a plow and do the work, he does what? He's nowhere to be found. And so Jesus gives a very simple parable. And he says, okay, so which one actually did what his father wanted? And the chief priests and these elders, these religious people that are around Jesus that he's talking to, they say, well, obviously it was the first one who, even though at first he said, I don't want anything to do with this, but then eventually said, okay, I'll do it. That's the one that did what the father wanted. And then Jesus turns it on their head. Did you catch that? Uh, this may come as a surprise if you don't know the context, because Jesus turns around in verse 31 he says, which of the two did the will of the Father? And of course, the people listening to Jesus said, well, the first one, the one who even though at first disobeyed, he ended up obeying. Then Jesus surprises them, and he says to them, truly, I say to you, the deplorables, the wrong kind of people, the people you don't like, the people that have the wrong political opinions, whatever group of people that you and I despise, that's who he goes to. He says the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God instead of you, before you. Why? Because John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance. And they listened. They turned. And they are entering the kingdom of God. But you have yet to repent. And he says, and even when you saw 
sinners, the wrong kind of people coming to the kingdom of God, you still didn't change your minds. See, this is Jesus knocking on the back door of the heart. It's a pretty hard thing to say to somebody, right? You are not saved. You are not in the kingdom of God. And you resent the grace of God. That's what he's saying to these people. But he uses this parable. So what are we supposed to see from the first son? Um, What are we supposed to see? So what does the first son do? Does the first son obey or disobey? The first son says, no, I don't want to do it. But eventually, he ends up doing it. So what are we supposed to see in that? Uh, Well, uh, there's a great, great person. Uh, I love him to death, although I've never met him. Uh, His name is Albert Pujols. Anybody know the name Albert Pujols? He is the greatest living baseball player Maybe. He's certainly the oldest living baseball player still playing in the major leagues. Uh, He plays for the Cardinals. He's 43. And he famously said this, and I think it's the point of the first son. He says, it's not how you start the season that matters. It's how you finish. Listen to the wise words of the Dominican Albert Pujols. It is not how you start the season. It's how you finish. If you wind up helping the team make the playoffs, that's what you play for. It is not for individual stats. It is to get a chance to play in the World Series. You know, what are we supposed to see out of this first son? It is not how you start faith that matters. It's how you finish. Let me put it maybe a different way. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is not your birthright. It is not yours by being born in the church or being raised in the church. That is not what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not a matter of your birthright. It is a matter of being born of the Holy Spirit. It is not about birthright. It is about being reborn. It is about being reborn. Jesus is telling very educated very religious, very devout people that they need to repent, that they need to be born of the Spirit. It's the same thing Jesus said to a guy named Nicodemus, and it's the same thing that he's saying in this parable. You know, it's a hard message for us to hear, but if you're a Christian in the room, I want to tell you just something about your testimony that you probably don't believe, but I want to convince you to believe. Uh, Two things. Uh, If you're a Christian in the room, if you follow Jesus Christ, two things about your testimony, about your story in life. Um, Number one, everybody who has ever entered the kingdom of God has the same story. We all have the same story. We were all born in sin. We were all first under the wrath of God, We were all by nature children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, and we were by nature children of wrath. Anybody know what I'm quoting right now? I'm quoting the Bible. I'm quoting Ephesians. And Paul says that's true of him. And if it's true of Paul, it's true of everybody else. But because of God's great love with which he loved us, we are born again through faith by grace alone. So friend, there is nobody who has ever come to faith in Jesus simply because they were raised in the right kind of family or raised in the right church. Friends, we are born again. We all choose on some level to leave a life of sin and follow Jesus. That's true of every one of us. When you hear of a son that says, I don't want to do what the father tells me to do, and you think, ah, okay, fine, I'll do it. 
On some level, that's every one of us, if you follow Jesus. We have all turned. We have all fallen astray. We have all said no to God. Yet, we are saved by faith alone, not by our good deeds, right? So that's the first thing. We all have the same basic story. Secondly, what I want to tell you, Christian, is every believer has a beautiful, fascinating testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, I meet Christians, and they tell me, like, the funniest things, y'all. They'll be like, Duh. I'm like, how did you become a Christian? And you know what most people will say? What's the first, first thing they'll say? How did you become a Christian? I was raised in the church. And I'm like, okay. That's like saying, how did your morning start? And you go, well, I woke up. And it's like, yeah, duh, we all woke up this morning. Skip that part. That's true, but not necessary to say. They go on. What does it mean? And they say, well, eventually they'll say something. If they're, if they're raised in the church, you know what they'll say? They're like, well, I have a really boring testimony. It's so uninteresting. Nothing cool happened. I mean, I never did drugs. I never killed anybody. I never went to jail. And I'm like, how is that like the test of what an interesting testimony is? Your mother would never want you to go through that. Like, why would God want you to go through that, right? Uh, you know, your testimony does not hinge on how dramatic of a salvation it is. You know what's dramatic about salvation? It's not you. You are not the thing that's dramatic about salvation. What's dramatic about salvation and knowing God is that Jesus Christ loved you so much that he went to the cross for you. He died on the cross for you. And now, because Jesus has come back from the dead, because the Holy Spirit raised him to new life, you now can have the Holy Spirit in your heart. You can choose to follow God, and you are forgiven, and you are reborn into a family. He has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. When God looks at you, he sees a redeemed and beloved child. Nothing about that is boring. If you think that is boring, you need to open up your eyes and start to see the glory of God. <laughs> the story's not about us. It's about him. But the part, hard part about this parable, right, is we think we have this boring testimony. But friends, what I'm suggesting to you is that this firstborn son that says no to the father but ultimately says yes, that's every one of us. So how do you know? You know, I know this brings up a question. How do you know? How do you know if you're saved? You know, that's oftentimes, you know, when we talk about salvation, people's first question, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I, I, I was raised around this stuff, so how do I know if it's real? Let me give you two, um, let me give you two exercises, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to riff off of the diet and exercise motif. I'm going to give you two simple exercises that you can do anytime you want to see whether or not you have the Spirit, okay? Number one, uh, these are not exhaustive. They're not exhaustive, but let me give you two exercises. This is like jumping jacks. Do people still do jumping jacks? Who works out in the room? Who? I don't. I have kids. That's like my workout. I like carry kids all the time. Um, this is like a jumping jack or like a burpee. Is that a thing? Do, are burpees a thing? Burpees are a thing. Okay, this is like a spiritual burpee. All right, here's your spiritual burpee. How do I know if I'm born of the Spirit? How do I know if this is real? How do I know if I'm like this first son who turned from sin and is now following God? First spiritual test. Number one, when Jesus says that deplorables, wicked people, tax collectors and prostitutes, the wrong kind of people, when Jesus says those people are being reconciled to God and brought into the kingdom, how does your heart respond to that? Because if you're born of the Spirit, your heart should say, praise God, 
Praise God that people's lives are being changed and they know God's grace and forgiveness. If your heart says, well, not them, not them, that may be a sign, friend, that you're like the other son. Because when the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you want more people to know God's grace and kindness. When Jesus says the wrong kind of people are turning their lives around, you raise your hands and think, praise God. That's exactly the God that I know. He comes for people like that because I'm people like that. That's his first spiritual burpee. Second one, you can always ask yourself this, this basic question. This is a litmus test par excellence. You know what it is? Why should you get into heaven? Why should you get into heaven? Has anyone ever asked you that? Let me ask you that. Why should you get into heaven? There's only one right answer. There's only one right answer. You know what the answer is? The answer is you shouldn't. You should not, and neither should I. You know why? Because I was a child of wrath. Left to myself, I will not choose God. We have all turned, we have all gone astray. The message of the kingdom is not about making good people better. It is about ransoming broken people from the fall and transplanting them, transferring them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You know, when people join the church, when people join our church, you know what the first vow they take is? They say this, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope, except in God's mercy? Friends, this is how the gospel humbles you and me to ways we never thought possible or that we needed. But this is the kind of gospel humility that Jesus talks about. Because when you see the wrong kind of people going to salvation, you have been so humbled, you think, I was the wrong kind of person. I was the wrong kind of person. What did Charles Spurgeon say when he watched people go into the gallows? There go I, but for the grace of God. Why should we get into heaven? We shouldn't. But Christ died for me, so I am. <laughs> I am going to heaven, but it's not because of something that I did. It's because of something that Christ did for me. My faith is not a good work. Faith, my faith in Jesus is like the empty hand that receives the grace of God. Friends, what I'm suggesting to you is if you're a Christian in the room this morning, you have a fascinating story, you have a fascinating testimony, it's like all everybody else's, you turn from sin to the one true God, and you are saved by grace. What are we supposed to learn from this other son, though? What about this other son who says, I go, sir, but later on doesn't do it? Well, to understand Jesus' point, you've got to zoom out a little bit in Matthew 21. Well, look at verses 23 through 27. If you've got one of those blue Bibles, it's just the subsection right above ours. You see, Jesus has entered Holy Week. That's where we are in the story of Matthew, which means that on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem. And what's going to happen to Jesus on Friday? Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. On Friday, what happens? He's going to die on the cross, right? And so we are here, according to Mark, we are, on, we are on day Tuesday. We are on Tuesday of Holy Week. You know, every Easter we recognize Holy Week. Uh, some people call it Passion Week, but this is a whole week where Jesus is speaking, and what's happening is the chief priests, all the devout, quote-unquote, religious people are trying to put Jesus to death, and they will not stop trying to put him to death until they succeed. And so they are trying to catch Jesus in saying something wrong. 
And so these chief priests and the elders, they come up to him in verse 23, and you know, like all people in authority and power, they say, uh, hey, Jesus, uh, who gave you the right to speak like this? Who, under whose authority are you talking? And Jesus, because he's Jesus and loves to ask questions, answers their you know, question by asking his own question. He says, oh, you want to know who gave me authority to talk about the kingdom of God this way? Tell you what, if you can tell me whether or not God sent John the Baptist I will tell you on whose authority I'm saying these kind of things. And so these religious guys, these important people, they get together and they're like, okay, is John the Baptist from God or not? And the problem, of course, is if they say yes, then they're exposed because they did not listen to John the Baptist's message of repentance. They didn't turn. They didn't rejoice when the tax collectors and the prostitutes were redeeming their life and being baptized in front of them. They got angry because the wrong people were getting saved. So they can't say John the Baptist was from God because then they'd be exposed as hypocrites. But then if they say John the Baptist isn't from God, the whole crowds around them will get really angry because they all love John the Baptist. And so what do they do? They punt. They say, we don't know. We don't know. And so Jesus says, well, I'm not even going to answer your question if you can't answer mine. But what Jesus does next is he tells this parable. So what is the second son doing? Well, Jesus is telling these religious guys, these chief priests and rulers, what he's saying is he's saying, you're like this other son. You tell people you follow God, you do all these right things, but really when push comes to shove, you don't. You know why? It's because being right with God is not somebody's birthright. <laughs> being right with God is about being reborn of the Holy Spirit. These chief priests, these rulers, they knew they were the good people because they were born in the right kind of family. But what Jesus has the audacity to tell them is the same thing he has the audacity to tell Nicodemus. Unless you are born of the Spirit and of water, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And even if you're not a Christian, this starts to explain why they put Jesus to death. Because he had the audacity to speak to these important people like this. You know, what does it mean, you know, to be reborn? You know, whenever I think about this parable of the two sons, you know, one guy originally was like, I don't want God. And then he ends up saying, okay, I'll obey God. And then the other brother says, yes, I am a very religious good person. And then actually he says, nah, not really. I don't know if I would buy this stuff. You know, whenever I think about that story, I think of my own conversion, which, if you've never heard it, is a fascinating, not boring, <laughs> amazing testimony. You know why? Because it's not about me. Now, many of you know that uh, I came to faith in college after a uh, long extended time of deconstructing my faith. I didn't have that word available to me, but I would have used it. And uh, eventually, someone shared the gospel with me. But what I, I seldom tell is actually, you know who was sitting on the porch with me while I listened to the gospel? It was actually my roommate. And I loved my roommate. I don't think I've ever loved another guy as much as I love my roommate. I mean, we were best friends. And uh, I'll call him Jason. That's not his real name. But Jason and I sat and we listened to the gospel. And it hit me that I'd never actually loved God. I was presuming that just because I was born in the church that I was somehow right with God. Couldn't be further from the truth. Had no love for God in my heart. Didn't have anything to do with Christianity. Over the next two days, as many of you know, I read through a certain book. Who knows what book I read? I read through the Gospel of John. And I remember like two days after that, like, Whoa, Jesus is really calling me. 
and I think I'm supposed to obey him. I'll never forget, I was standing in the student union, you know, the cafeteria thing where we got lunch, and it was me and my roommate. And I was like, dude, I think if we're really, like, going to do this Jesus thing, I think it's kind of like all or nothing. I think I have to give, like, everything to him, and I don't think I want to do that. Like, I have to let him dictate everything that I think. He has to tell me what's right and what's wrong, and I don't, I don't know, like, I just don't know if I want to give him everything. That's a really horrifying idea, <laughs> to be totally honest. And uh, I'll never forget what Jason said. Jason said, look, buddy, here's the thing. We just need to be good people. And when we, go to he- when we die, we're just going to go to heaven. Stop being a fanatic about this. You're taking it too far. We are good people. We are fine. We're going to go to heaven when we die. And like, I just want to have fun right now. And it's, you're taking this too far. And, you know, I was like a 20-year-old knucklehead college student. But even then, I knew in my heart that that is not what Jesus came to say. <laughs> That is not the gospel. Jesus did not come to tell good people, be a little better, and when you die, you'll go to heaven. That is, nothing about that message would make people so angry that they would crucify you for saying that. Jesus came saying something totally, radically different, and he didn't turn the world upside down. You know what he did? He literally turned the world right side up, and he had the audacity to say this. And I remember thinking, Jason, that is not what Jesus came to say. Okay, that may be how you want to live, but that is not honest. That is not what Jesus says, and there's nothing like that in the Bible. And after that moment, there became, looking back on it, that was a decisive moment in our lives. Because that was the moment that I knew I was going to have to be a Christian. I don't even want to be a Christian. I'm going to be one because I guess Jesus is right. I went begrudgingly into the kingdom of God, y'all. It was, <laughs> it was, a, it was a hard conversion. Um, but I was convinced by Jesus, and everything else followed after that. But my friend Jason, his life careened in the other direction. Um, I don't have time to tell it, uh, but his life could not have gone any differently than mine. Not that I was a better person than him, but his life and his faith were made shipwreck. See, friends, the Christian life is about repentance and knowing God's grace. These religious leaders, these people that presumed that they were born just the right way, Jesus says, hey, if you were born the right, if you figured all this out, why didn't you know when John the Baptist was saying things and people's lives were being changed? And even then, you didn't see it. You know why? Because one of the marks of having the Spirit inside of us is when you see people's lives changed, even the wrong people, you think, praise God. Praise God. And they failed that test. So when you look at this parable of the two sons, you know, I mean, it's so easy to ask, you know, which son are you? Are you uh, first off disobeying and now walking in obedience? Or are you this son who's a pretender? Just assuming that because, you know, you were born in the right family or raised in the church, that somehow you're going to be fine, even though your heart is very far from God. You know, how do we respond? Well, here's the good news. The good news is that there is another son. If you look down at Matthew 21, Jesus follows up this parable about two sons, both of whom need repentance. And Jesus talks about another son of the master. And this other son always obeys his father. He always does what is right. But because he is obeying the will of the father, what happens to this other son? He's murdered. And Jesus, on Tuesday of Holy Week, 
is looking at these priests and these rulers and these elders, and he's saying, don't you see I am the ultimate son of the Father? Come to always obey. I will take the punishment of your sins, and I will rise from the dead to show you that a new way of life is possible. Jesus is the ultimate son who obeys. That's what's got to click, friend. That's what's got to click in your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. The message of Jesus Christ, the son of God, it finally clicks in your mind that he really is the way, the truth, and the life. Friend, it is not about your birthright. It is about being reborn by the spirit in faith in the son of God. Now, friends, that's an invitation. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that you know that our souls are shy, that you use parables to convince us. Now, Lord, we think back to the wise woman giving that parable of the two sons. We think back to Jesus using this parable of the two sons. Now, Lord, we have things that we need to hear. And Lord, we thank you that you use the back door, that you use these stories. Now, Father, as people come to faith in you, Lord, as the wrong people come to faith, as they start to repent, Lord, we yearn to be the kind of people that say, praise the Father, that give you the glory. Now, Lord, I pray that for everyone that's assuming upon your grace, Lord, that they would know that your grace is meant to lead us to repentance. Now, Lord, that if we've been raised in the church, but we have not given all of our lives to you, uh, Lord, I pray that you would call men and women to repentance and faith, just like you did to me, even if I had to go fighting and kicking. Lord, thank you for your grace. It is in Christ alone that we hope and we pray. Amen.